0: up tonight in Exodus chapter 4, which is a continuation from chapter 3, the dialogue between God and Moses, the Lord speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. And here we find Moses raising further objections and making excuses regarding the call that God has for him to go and deliver his people from Egypt. Moses is the reluctant leader par excellence, but this passage emphasizes God's determination to send Moses on this mission and to equip his servant to fulfill it and to accomplish it for his redemptive purposes. In this passage, we gain insights into how God works the human weakness to accomplish his purpose. Please follow as I read Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take shall, uh, that you shall, take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, Now I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff, which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt so to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut her, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, "'Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me.' So he let him alone. It was then that she said, "'A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision.' The Lord said to Aaron, "'Go into the wilderness to meet Moses.' So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had been commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel... That he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, you have redeemed and delivered your people of old. And you are our redeemer, our deliverer, even down to this very day. And we ask that you might give us wisdom and insight as we study this ancient text together. As we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Saturday was the North America Wife Carrying Contest at a ski resort up in Maine. To compete in this event, a man must transport his wife through a hilly obstacle course, 278 yards long, replete with two log hurdles in a 20-foot water trench. Now, the man can carry his wife with his preferred running style, whether piggyback or fireman style, or the popular Estonian method, where the wife rides upside down with her legs wrapped around the man's neck and her arms wrapped around his waist. The only stipulation is that the wife may not touch the ground until the finish line. Now, apparently ex-Olympians have competed in this contest, but others compete for the hope of first prize, which includes the wife's and beer, Five times the wife's weight in cash and a $1,000 voucher to go to the World Wife Carrying Championship in Finland. I tried to sign up, but my wife wouldn't sign the wafer. Such a contest is not only a test of physical strength and stamina, but also relational strength and stamina. A man and his wife must trust each other. They must communicate in order to finish the race. The race. And this race, like life, is filled with obstacles. Well, in a marriage, a a husband and wife at times are called to carry one another. And that relationship is tested by various obstacles. In our text, we see God entering into relationship with his people, like a marriage. And, And God is equipping and preparing his servant Moses to serve as his people's redeemer. And as we read, Moses is very reluctant. He's, he's hesitant, feeling ill-equipped. He has major reservations about taking up this calling. He offers up objections and excuses. God and Moses's relationship will be tested by trial. Like a wife trusting her husband being carried upside down, Moses must trust the Lord, which in a manner that feels very uncomfortable and foreign to his natural instincts, strengths, and weaknesses. And like Moses, you and I may be reluctant to take up a calling that the Lord presses upon us in order to achieve his redemptive purposes. Scripture teaches us that God equips us to do everything that he calls us to do. And in this passage, we see how God equips us with His power, His grace, and the community of His people. Well, chapter 4 is a continuation of the dialogue of Moses at the foot of the burning bush. And he raises the objection that the people just won't listen to him. I mean, Moses, where have you been for 40 years? The last time you tried to deliver us, you failed. Where has this God been all this time? Has he truly seen and heard our misery and sorrows? So Moses rightly recognizes that the people will not hear him, at least not on his own authority. Moses must go in the power and authority of God, or not go at all. What well, the Lord has prepared for Israel's skepticism and Moses' objections, and he offers to Moses three signs and wonders to confirm his authority, to confirm that the Lord has truly appeared to him. These three signs include a a staff, the staff of the Lord that Moses can throw down that turns into a snake, his hand that becomes leprous, going into the cloak and cured the second time in. And thirdly, the Nile water, turning into blood as it pours to the ground. In these signs, God will demonstrate his power over nature, over the human body, and even over the false gods of Egypt. It's interesting to note that the, in the tradition of the pharaohs, on their crown would often find a cobra emblem, the snake, the cobra, being associated with the sun god, Ray. Egypt was also a culture that prized cleanliness. Anybody having some skin disorder or disease was considered unclean and outcast from society. And thirdly, the Nile was the heartbeat and lifeblood of Egypt's economy and welfare. So what do these signs signify? Why does God give them to Moses? Well, we can learn from these things that one, Moses must fear the Lord more than he fears a snake, as he must overcome his natural instincts and reservations to take up the snake by the tail as it turns back into a staff. Leprosy also illustrates our own leprous hearts, the taintedness of our own sin nature, that only the Lord can heal and regenerate. And in turning the Nile water into blood, God would demonstrate that he can and he would conquer Israel's enemy. So the Lord in these signs has the power to transform, renew, and conquer. But at least three lessons I'd like to briefly offer about signs and wonders in the Bible. And the first is that signs and wonders are secondary to the word of God. God's word is confirmed by signs and wonders God's messengers are confirmed their authority is confirmed by way of signs and wonders Moses is not being sent as a magician he's not an entertainer he's not going to Egypt to impress people he's going to teach the people of God to deliver them from bondage that they might serve the Lord freely these signs are given to him to overcome the obstacles of unbelief. Secondly, signs and wonders are not common in the Bible. Many suppose that the Bible's full of miracles. A skeptic will dismiss the Bible as God's authoritative, authoritative word, dismissing, oh, well, you've got miracles happening all over the place. Well, it's really not true. What we find in Scripture are clusters. Clusters and concentrations of miracles really limited to about three generations. The Exodus generation, who saw God deliver the people through Moses out of bondage in Egypt. We see them again, not until the divided kingdom and the launch of the prophetic age in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And then many generations pass before we see signs and wonders in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, who only had a three-year itinerant ministry followed by his apostles, who also gave signs and wonders for a time, but the end of the New Testament indicates that the signs and wonders were fading, giving primacy to the word of God. And so we receive God's word via the prophets and the apostles, whose testimony was confirmed by signs and wonders, but only for a limited time. A third point on signs and wonders, is that, that they do not guarantee faith. I mean, one would think if, if anybody saw such wonders, they would immediately believe in the Lord. Well, that's just not the case. First, we notice that these signs were primarily for Israel, not for Egypt. Yes, to pronounce judgment upon Egypt, but primarily to shore up and strengthen the weak faith of God's people. God's people were skeptical. But once they saw the God's power and love demonstrated by the signs, they grew to trust him and believe upon him. So signs alone don't guarantee belief. Pharaoh witnessed all these signs. He saw the great and amazing deeds of Almighty God, who, who gave evidence that he's, his power was superior to the false gods of Egypt. Yet Pharaoh only hardens his heart further and further and further to to his own destruction and the destruction of his people. Later, we see Israel. The people Israel, the same people who had seen the signs, who had been delivered out of Egypt, who had crossed the Red Sea, who had seen God provide water and manna in the wilderness. These same people grumble, complain, and rebel despite the great wonders of the Lord, who had toppled Egypt and carried Israel on his back through the wilderness. And then, of course, there's the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave multiple signs and wonders, who healed the sick, restored the sight of the blind, gave hearing to the deaf, made the lame walk, and even raised the dead. And, of course, many people believed and glorified God. Yet others attributed Jesus' power to Satan, ridiculed him, conspired for his death. The signs of God's power strengthen the faithful, He oftentimes hardens the hearts of God's enemies. A couple of application points. One is that we are not to expect, not normally expect, miraculous signs. They are not normative in the experience of God's people, though God has a free hand and can do whatever he wills according to his perfect purposes. In recent times, we hear reports of God revealing himself in visions and dreams. In the Muslim world, even the conversion we experienced in our refugee ministry a few weeks ago, a woman claimed to have received a vision, a dream, compelling her to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God is at work in our age. But it always points to the primacy of God's word. We're not to expect miracles from our leaders our pastors and other leaders do not walk in water. We do not turn water into wine. But the pastor must be a man who is convicted that the Bible is God's word, must preach Christ-centered messages with zeal and shepherd with Christ-like wisdom and tenderness. And we can also learn from these signs and wonders and the theme of God's power is that we can't expect God to give us power and wisdom to say and to do the things necessary as we fulfill our calling, as we go about the service that he calls us to as his witnesses in the various spheres in which he has called us. Jesus promised his disciples that he would give them words to say as they stand before magistrates, as they must give witness and testify before imminent threats. And so wherever God calls you, in the home, in the workplace, in your service as a nursery worker, as an usher, as a Sunday school teacher, whether you're driving refugees, serving in good news clubs after school, or being a witness to your neighbor or a family member, whether God calls you to forgive, to bear with a difficult, strained relationship in your life, perhaps to endure a painful medical condition. Whatever it is, That's your lot in this life. You can do with confidence that God will carry you, will equip you with the power and the strength to enable you to soar on eagle's wings as you trust in Him. Secondly, God equips us with His grace. Verses 10 through 17 are actually one of my favorite sections of the entire Bible. You would think that with these three signs in hands, Moses would be eager and excited about going to Israel to show them, to share with them the good news that God has not forgotten them, that he has come to deliver them. But once again, Moses makes excuses. This time he complains that he is not eloquent. He is slow of speech. I mean, come on, God, doesn't everyone know that a leader has to be able to speak well and Give good speeches? How can Moses possibly lead with a speech impediment? Admire those people who struggle with stammering or stuttering or some type of speech impediment who rise to lead and serve and speak, whether God's word as a pastor or a leader like King George VI who helped lead Britain during World War II. Why would God call a man who stutters notice that God does not fix Moses' speech problem. He has not enable Moses to go in his own competence, but God sends him in his weakness, that he might not rely upon his own strength but rest upon God's power. God, Moses' weakness will magnify God's grace. It's God's omnipotence that matters, not our incompetence. I find this passage quite interesting that after Moses makes his excuse, the God speaks like he had with Job interrogating Moses. Who made a man's mouth? Who makes a man mute or deaf or blind? God is basically saying, who are you, Moses, to question the Lord? And here the Lord commands Moses to go and promises to be with his mouth to teach him how to speak that would be enough for me. I suppose that might be enough for you. Most of us would be more afraid of God's wrath than our fear of public speaking, which still tops the list of most people's fears. So how does heroic, legendary Moses respond to this command? He whines. He complains. He he, he withers before the Lord. Like a stubborn mule, he digs in his heels begging God to send someone else. The text actually doesn't say that explicitly. It says more like, Lord, send whom you will. But it's a weak response. It's not a strong response of affirmation and confidence. Moses wins the most reluctant leader award. He's gotten used to the pastoral life of following sheep in Midian, He prefers the comfort and ease of Midian, the Lancaster County of the Middle East. He's smart enough to know that this calling involves hardship, pain, frustration, exhaustion, and he loathes it in his flesh. But I, for one, appreciate this candidness in Scripture, that as Moses is not afraid to reveal the way things really were, Moses did not paint himself a hero. He paints himself in the weakness of his flesh. There was no other eyewitness. Moses wrote this himself, compelled by God's Spirit to record his weak need, mule-headed, ornery, cowardly fear of trial. His wimpish response to God's call. Moses is not the exemplary, flawless leader we would all like to follow. He has plenty of dents and cracks in his armor. And I, for one, find that refreshingly real, that God can use weak men to accomplish great things. But what I find even more striking and more revealing in God's economy of redemption is not so much Moses' mealy-mouthed excuse, but rather God's response. The text says that the anger of the Lord flared up, and that, that term for anger is the image of a, of a bull's nostrils flared up before he charges. Did you know that this is the first recording of God's anger in the whole Bible? This is the first occasion where anger is directly attributed to the Lord. Think about that. Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled, ruining God's creation. And God enters into the garden walking gently, confronts them, rebukes them, corrects them firmly but gently. Then God was grieved that, sin, that mankind has sinned greatly, and so he sends a flood, a devastating flood, to destroy the whole earth. And then later, arrogant men build a tower to heaven, and God stoops down and strikes the men with various languages and scatters them over the face of the earth. There are numerous opportunities for God to be angry in the early history of mankind. But it takes Moses' arguing, excuses, and stubbornness to arouse the anger of Almighty God. You know, there are certain people that can arouse your anger. And what we say in Texas, there are certain people that get under your craw that really work you up. Perhaps it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling. There, there are certain people who can really get to you and irk your ire. And God's anger is aroused as he enters into a relationship with Moses. Moses and through Moses is entering into covenant with God's people. It's a marriage in the making. This is God entering in intimately and personally with his people, and God responding to the weakness and frailty and orneriness and excuse-making of his beloved children. I encourage you as you continue in this Exodus series to pay attention to the dialogue between God and Moses. It is uniquely intimate, personal, and relational. At times, God and Moses sound like an old married couple. It's like they're arguing. It's like they're telling each other, no, these are your people. No, these are your people. It's like when I come home, my wife says to me, let me tell you what your sons have done today. God in his relationship with Moses is intimate, is real, is relational. We have a relational God who enters into our lives, and God never sins with this speech, or the manner in which he disciplines his people Israel. Moses' flaws are revealed repeatedly, and yet the Lord remains flawless. But God equips his people with grace— offering us real relationship, and he supports the one he calls to serve. God's graciousness continues as we see his patience with Moses, his flexibility as he accommodates Moses' weakness by by appointing Aaron, his brother, to be the speaker Like a a wise parent negotiating a task with a child, The, the sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning has already sent Aaron. He already knows what he is about to do as he listens to Moses' concerns, and he offsets his leader's weaknesses with another servant's strengths. And God will fulfill his purposes, establishing Moses and Aaron as though they are God with his prophet to stand up and face off with Pharaoh. As I understand it, Pharaoh would also have a mouthpiece. Pharaoh would be like God to his speaker who would face off with Aaron. And Pharaoh facing off with Moses and the gods of Egypt facing off with the true God of Israel. Something is beautiful about this relationship Something is beautiful about the way God works with us, flaws and all, and all of our shortcomings and excuse-making to carry out his redemptive purpose. God equips us with his grace when we are weak, incompetent, making us fitted and suitable for service. This text reminds us that God is not looking for superheroes. He's not looking for perfect saints, but he's looking for willing servants who are willing to trust him. God works with all kinds of people, people who have a past, people who live with regrets, people who battle anxiety and depression. Those of us who struggle with fear of man, who lisp, who stutter, who have defects and problems, God works with the proud The vain. Those of us with anger problems, with marriage problems, who have difficulty with our children. People who dislike their jobs. People who are poor mismanaging their money. Noah got drunk. Samson was a rage monster. David had all kinds of issues. The 12 disciples were knuckleheads. You see how they're proud and stubborn and selfish, slow to learn, cowards at the end when Jesus needed them the most. But Jesus entrusted the 12 with the keys of the kingdom, launched them on the greatest mission the world has ever known, and grew them into mighty men of faith who humbly and faithfully pass on the deposit of the faith that is ours to carry in our own generation. There are legitimate reasons why you may or may not be able to serve in a certain role. It's not my job or any other leader's job to guilt trip or manipulate people or force fit people into certain service roles. We want to seek people to serve where they're suited to serve, where they're a good fit. But everybody has their part to play. Everybody has their load to carry to meet the needs of the body of Christ. And God is gracious. He will supply all that is needed for life. And for godliness, equipping us to serve in the harvest field to which he has called us. Thirdly, God equips his people with community, with people who can support them in the work. Moses, reluctantly, is now committed And he goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, to seek his permission and his blessing. And you may ask, well, why does an 80-year-old man need permission from his father-in-law? Well, his father-in-law was the clan leader. Moses was a worker. His livelihood depended upon his father-in-law. And his father-in-law likely needed Moses to serve uh, among his flocks. But graciously, Jethro offers his permission and his blessing. And you'll notice that Jethro later on will bless Moses again when he returns with the people and receives counsel from his father-in-law to delegate authority to operate an effective and sustainable structure for leadership. God speaks to Moses again and helps to make the task a little more palatable, informing him that the men who were seeking his life, who wanted retribution for killing the Egyptian 40 years prior, these men were dead. The path was clear of this old threat. And the Lord charges Moses to stand before Pharaoh, to be faithful, to perform the miraculous signs. And the Lord, like any good leader, sets Moses' expectations. He says Pharaoh will be stubborn. Pharaoh will harden his heart. And the showdown between them would climax with the death of the firstborn before Israel's release and redemption is secured. Now this background on the death of the firstborn is important as it helps us to understand and interpret what perce- what comes after in verses 24 to 26, this, this, odd, uh, this odd part of the text where Moses' wife Zipporah circumcises her son to ward off the threat of death. Now this obscure passage has been variously interpreted throughout the uh, decades and and generations? Is it Moses' life that was at risk? Was it God's vengeance upon Moses for failing to circumcise his oldest son, Gershom? Well, I would point out to you that in verses 24 to 26, that Moses' name is not explicitly mentioned. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a footnote uh, that indicates that the Hebrew term there is the possessive pronoun his— It could be Moses, or it could be his son. And the bridegroom of blood, which many assume refers to Moses, I understand that that term has a broad domain. They can refer to other family members. And that Zipporah very well could be referring to her own son in that phrase at the end of these verses. But the context here would indicate to us that Moses' oldest son is the object of God's wrath. God having just spoken of striking down the firstborns of Egypt. And so what I think is happening here is a kind of precursor, a preview of the Passover. That the angel of death is coming as a threat to the firstborn son, Gershom. Zipporah, being a wise and uh, insightful wife and mother... It's protecting her son from the Lord's vengeance, taking care of what had been neglected, as Moses failed to circumcise his own son, and smearing the blood, the text says, at his feet, which can be a euphemism for genitalia, or can also refer to the legs. And legs in scripture can be symbolic for columns or doorposts, as we see in the Song of Solomon. And so what we find here. It is a preparation for the Passover. Because what will happen at the Passover is the Israelite families will be spared the angel of death, God's avenger, by smearing the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And so Moses and Zipporah will be spared the sorrow and death of their firstborn by Zipporah's brave and faithful action. And through this, God makes Moses an object lesson to the Egyptians and to Israel, indicating that there is only one way to be saved, that circumcision was a bloody sign of the Old Testament, a sign that we deserve death for our rebellion, for our unbelief. And circumcision points forward to the greater circumcision that's revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. This passage reminds us that God is serious about holiness. Later on, Aaron will lose his two oldest sons when they authorize, when they uh, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. God equips Moses with a godly wife with a zeal for holiness who spares them of sorrow and hindrance to their service. Moses' life will anticipate Israel's experience, spent 40 years in the wilderness raising their sons, circumcising them outside the land, will enter the defiled land, that land and pagan people who will suffer the wrath of God as he redeems his people for himself. Circumcision is a reminder that we deserve death, but circumcision provided cover for the people of old until the coming crucifixion of the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the Lord equips Moses further with his older brother Aaron, his partner, the one who would come and actually speak to the elders and speak directly to Pharaoh. And as Moses and Aaron go before the elders of Israel, they are relieved to find that the elders and the people believe They believe that God sees them in their affliction and they bow and worship the Lord just as the Lord had told Moses they would. The Lord equips and surrounds Moses with others who can help carry the load. And the Lord equips Moses with the greatest gift, his own son, the mysterious angel of the Lord who will appear throughout the Exodus journey. The rock from which will come the supply of water to quench the thirst of the Israelite people in the wilderness and guide them throughout their perilous journey. The Lord does not send his people alone. Even when we feel like we are alone, Jesus is with us. He is with his servant, his presence mediated by the Holy Spirit. Christ equips us even as he promised his first disciples that he will enable us to do even greater things after his departure. Yes, in life we may feel like the poor wife being carried upside down in this wife-carrying contest with our head being banged against logs and plunged into a trench of muddy water. This journey is not for the faint of heart, but for those who trust that the Lord carries us that you carry us as we run our race. By God's grace, we'll fulfill our mission and receive heaven's reward. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you carry us, that you equip us by your power and your grace and the community of God's people to fulfill the task that you've given us. I pray that you would strengthen and encourage each of us as we go about our week doing the work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. We commit these things to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.